Hi everyone, this is Nature Tripping. I'm Cathy. And I'm Jo. Welcome to our podcast. It's about going outside to experience the wildlife that's all around us. We're going to be chatting about where we are and what's happening. But sometimes we'll just leave the microphones recording so we can spend some time just listening. So, Cathy. Hello, Joey. Um, here we are in a rather lovely setting on the west coast of northern England. We're in between Fleetwood and Morecambe, yeah? Fleetwood and Lancaster. Fleetwood and Lancaster. And that's Morecambe Bay. Oh, this there. is Morecambe Bay. Um, so, it's a lovely sunny day. There's a clear blue sky. It's hardly, well, there's a light breeze. And as you can hear by our footsteps, we're in a kind of marshy area, estuarine area. Um, behind us, there's a shallow bank leading up to a stone wall. And then we've got farmland behind that. You might be able to hear some of the farm birds. There's a lovely, several lovely hawthorn bushes with um, plentiful supplies of red berries. It's late October um, and in front of us, looking out, it's very, very flat. There's some low grasses and reeds and then beyond that, the estuary. Oh, we've also got Jack-Jack with us. Jack-Jack yep. the dog, so you might hear him from time to time. So, Cathy, you you're familiar with this area, yeah? Because you come here like regularly during the year to survey the bird populations. Do you want to say a bit about that? Yeah. So what we're doing here really is um, counting. I come here every month to count the the waders and ducks that um, use this mud flats for feeding every year. And Morecambe Bay is one of the best places in the country to see birds in the winter. Because hundreds of thousands of birds come here to spend the winter months. And the reason is because Morecambe Bay is so huge and shallow that there's this vast expanse of mudflats, which is teeming with food supply for wading birds and ducks. And um, like we can see, we can see here the tide's out, but it's coming in. It's like probably two hours before high tide. Okay. And... We can see a vast expanse of mudflats and scattered amongst that are all these birds feeding. Okay, so they're taking um, opportunity of the fact that the tide is out, all yeah. the mud is exposed yeah. and they can get to the food. And um, the stuff they're eating, that's um, shellfish, crustaceans and all the other little creatures that live in the mud. Right, so they're happily feeding away and they've probably been doing that for a few hours. Yeah, and then as the tide, the tide's going to gradually come in over this expanse of mudflats and the birds sort of move up as the tide comes in, they move up towards us where we're standing here, up this estuary. Okay, so hopefully we're going to, whilst it's very quiet at mm. the moment, all the birds are just getting on with feeding, I suppose. Yeah. Um, we've, we might expect that later on 
when the tide's up, there'll be a greater concentration of birds because they'll all be squashed up into the yeah. head of the estuary. And in fact, what they do is they clump up into flocks, according to species, and they actually, at high tide, they stop feeding when, all, when, when the seas when the sea's covered all the mudflats, they stop feeding and they actually have a rest. And that's called a roost at high tide. And that's the reason, this is one of the locations up and down Morecambe Bay where these birds come to roost. And that's why we do the survey at this point. So what what species have we got here then? I think I heard earlier some curlews. Yeah, so there's a few hundred curlew dotted about in the salt marsh at the moment. And... Also, the fir- one of the first things that happens on the rising tide is that the widgeon, that's a, a type of duck that breeds in Iceland and comes here for the winter, they are kind of drifting upstream on the rising tide and there's... Um, so they're actually, they're not feeding then, are they? Well, they've stopped feeding now, they're just floating up. They feed in shallow waters. Yeah. Oh, there's a little... What's that? A little songbird of some sort. Just, just there, just immediately on the mudflats in front of us, there's a large flock of oyster catchers that have gathered, and if I was doing my survey, I'd be counting them, and in front of them flying around some, a flock of red shanks coming into land beside the oyster catchers. So, do a rough estimate. Oh, here are some oyster catchers on, yeah. on the right of us. They're flying back over, it looks like they're flying back over to the fields behind us. Yeah. So, there are about 600 oyster catchers there in that flock, but there are plenty more spread around, and then gradually they congregate as the tide comes in. So, This is um, kind of a daily activity and I suppose a nightly activity too, is it? Because there's two tides in every 24 hour period. So the sea is continually going backwards um, to expose the mudflats and then moving forwards again. And it's going all the way out and all the way back twice every 24 hours. So are these birds kind of Continually just moving in and out. Yeah. yeah, so they'll come in on every tide, roost, and go out again. And then as the tide's going out and at low tide, they'll be feeding away, yeah. whether no matter what time of day or night it is. Yeah. So their 24-hour cycle, if you like, is governed by the two tides. Okay, and the tide times change every day so yeah. they don't really have a fixed routine do they i mean they're following the tide but, yes but uh one week they might be up at the estuary head at 4 p.m in the afternoon and a week later it might be 8 p.m at night or something yeah. i don't know but oh look can you see that little cloud that's a flock doing what we know that it's they're doing the same thing that starlings do which is murmurations they're flying around in a flock formation And um, yeah, that's their golden plover, and there's maybe uh, 250 there in that little flock. 
but see, when you see it, there's another one. See it on the horizon, it looks like a patch of smoke. Yeah. Drifting. Yeah. That is, in fact, a huge flock of starlings far away. So these birds, as I understand, they're not necessarily here all the year. They might have just, have some of them moved in yeah. to feed here um, for the winter and then they're somewhere else in the summer? Yeah, so, um, hang on a sec, What's, I'm just interrupting you there, that's a peregrine. See it put up all those flocks from the water, that peregrine, I always see him, him or her, every time I come and it tends to zoom in amongst the flocks, disturb them all, get them all flying up and then tries to catch a weaker one. Is it, are there, there two is. peregrines? Yeah, there's one up there as well. Yeah. That's one. And then that one in front of us? I think that's a seagull. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it disturbed all the flocks, but they've gone right back down again, so that's one of their main perils here. Uh, yeah, so migration. So I mentioned the widgeon. They, as I say, they breed in Iceland and come here for the winter and they stay here all winter. But some of these other birds have a completely different pattern. Um, I mean, birds like oyster catcher are resident in the UK, breed inland in northern Britain and come to the coast for the winter. Curlews um, do similar things. So this population here on the west coast, we've got thousands of curlews here in Morecambe Bay over the winter. And they breed up in the hills in Yorkshire, Lancashire, Northern England. So that's one of the reasons I started coming here to do this survey, because, you know, as you know, I'm quite obsessed by the curlews and we love hearing them every spring up on our moors in West Yorkshire. But they're actually only with us sort of March to June, July. And the rest of the year, so in fact the bulk of the year, they're spending down here in the salt marshes. Okay, so they just go back to the hills to breed. Yeah. Um, which is when we hear them. Yeah. And then come back down here for the rest of the year. Yeah, so so they, they do spend all of their lives in Britain. This, they just migrate yeah. to different parts of Britain for yeah. different I mean, periods the, of the season. Yes, there's, there's a whole different population of curlews which breed up in Scandinavia and they migrate to Britain for the winter and they spend the, so they tend to spend the winter on the east coast. So like the total breeding population of curlews in Britain is about 68,000, but the total count of wintering birds is 120,000. So that, that means it's just because all these Scandinavian breeding birds have joined. Because it's well, a bit cold for them in the winter up there, so yeah. they, they decide to come south a bit and end up on, on the east coast. Yes. Okay. That's interesting that you've got these two distinct colonies, yeah. I suppose, and they and they don't do the same thing. One of them moves from Scandinavia to Britain yeah. and back again and lives on the east when it's here, and the other one population just stays here yeah. and moves from the from the kind of uplands to the coast yes, and back right. again. Um, Dunlins are a completely different... So Dunlins are a small wader, and they do a completely different thing. Some... There's a, there are, again, there's two populations, some that breed in Iceland and winter in West Africa, but they come here en route. So um, you might see a lot of dandelions here 
in the spring and the autumn, but, but they're just passing through. So, okay, in the autumn they're heading south yeah. to get to West Africa, and in the spring they're heading back north to breed somewhere further north. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, then there's, there's another group of Dunlin that actually do come here and stay all winter, and they're the ones that breed in Scandinavia. Well, look, there's a big number of those on the move there, they're oyster catchers, they're moving inland. Are they being um, harassed by that peregrine Let's again? See. Scanning around. I can't see the peregrine, so I think they've just moved up. So gradually, see, you see we can see a lot more sea there now, a lot more water. So most of the mudflats we could see when we arrived have disappeared and the flocks, I mean if you actually watch that flock of oyster catchers continuously, the water comes up, they're all paddling about in the water, and then they gradually all take off and move up further upstream to the mudflats. You see they're up there on those mudflats further yeah, around? Yeah. They've all landed up there now. So that's their favourite spot, so usually that's where the, all the oyster catchers will congregate there, and usually the red shanks are all next to them. Oh, so they've got, what you've noticed is the different species have a different favourite spot. Yeah at the top of the estuary, a different yeah. roosting spot. Exactly, so they mm. tend to roost yeah. in that same spot. I mean, it does vary, you know, from week to week, but they're very creatures of habit. There's two large black birds flying over their cormorants. Okay, more on the move, more oyster catchers. So we're definitely starting to see more and more flocks move from our right to our left up yeah. to the top of the estuary, aren't they? Yeah. And we know we know at high tides at 11.40 today, isn't yeah. it? We, we, I don't know what time it is now, do you? It's about 10.15. Okay. An hour and a bit to go. All right. Um, Maybe we should uh, move ourselves a bit further up the estuary. Okay. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Certainly, if we go and stand actually up on the sea wall, we'll see more. Jack Jack doesn't seem to mind the salty water. No. Hmm. Okay. So let's go and relocate ourselves okay. further up. Yeah. We're going to be a bit nearer a farm and a caravan park, I think, so there might be some more human noises, but hopefully we'll also hear some more bird calls as well. We've now moved um, further 
up the estuary and what was just well what were muddy flats an hour ago and now completely covered with water yeah i've got the telescope out now so we've got more of a vantage point and on the grassy mud flats there as the water's coming over there's quite a lot of movement but that's a mixed flock of red shanks and dunlin and i think it looks like this is going to be quite a high tide because there's still about an hour to go and the water's already coming over the grass grassy area of the marsh so um have you been here before when it's completely covered the grass yeah right we're, we're standing on the sea wall yeah and it can come right up so it's just literally about five meters away there that's well that's a that's a height probably of about two meters up from where we are so it's a massive amount of water coming yeah. in. See what's this coming up on the water? They're um, seagulls. Well, let's see if we can. Know. They're black-headed gulls. Okay. Yeah. Be a bit more specific. And a great crested grebe, which is quite funny because we we always think of great crested grebes as being on freshwater, but there's usually one in this. Um, it's estuary, hanging out with the seagulls, is it? <laughs> it's hanging out on its own. Okay. There's another flock of red shanks over there with about, yeah, four curlews in amongst them. Mm. More red shank. Oh, and there's a little egret. So that beep, beep, beep. That's the red shank's yeah. call, yeah? So, yeah, that, the egret has got, surrounded by red shanks, few curlews and then some shell duck. And a red breasted merganza. So although there's the main interest here is all these flocks of wintering birds, there's a sort of smattering of other birds here in ones and twos. And of individuals? Yeah. So it's definitely worth... Are there some more mergansas? Yeah, there's probably about four or five mergansas out there. And there are a few more widgeon coming in. Right, that's it. So mainly all the birds are now on the marsh, not in the water. Okay, so they're beginning to roost? Yeah. Apart from the shell duck, the shell duck's still Which basically there. means having a rest. Yeah. They've done some heavy feeding, <laughs> they've eaten lots of worms and crustaceans and other little things living in the mud. Yeah. And they've come up to sit down and digest it all. Oh, I found the curlews. They're way away on the far bank. Yep. There's a few hundred over there. I'm not going to do a full count. But they're right over there on that bank. The curlew, I think it's fair to say, is possibly your favourite bird, Cathy? Yeah, well, along with the Arctic tern, but we okay. won't see any of them today. The, the curlew is definitely my favorite, number one favourite species, and I, I just love hearing them and seeing them on the moors and fields near us and the Pennines. But I, I think most people are aware they're a declining species in Britain. Do you? Well, it has been on the news. Do you think any, most people know what a curlew is? Well, maybe you should describe what a curlew <laughs> is, and maybe you could do your 
version of curly call because i've heard it and i i do think listeners it's quite convincing um uh, so the curlews are these quite large brown birds aren't they yeah so they're waders which means they've uh they've got longish necks and then a really long Bill. That is their very extraordinarily yeah. defining feature, their so kind of very long curved beak. Uh, yeah, downward curving beak. So how many inches long? What, the whole thing? I think it's about, well, it's well over a foot. Right, so imagine, imagine a big wader. brown bird with a beak a foot long. No, the beak's not a foot long. Oh. I mean the whole thing, but okay, well, how beak long? to tail is probably about that long. How long's the beak though? Oh. Six or seven inches? Yeah, so... Still... I used to have one in my skull collection, but yeah. I lost it. Oh, okay. So still very long beak. Yes. Um, Which they use for dibbling right deep into the mouth. Yeah, so they'll be getting worms, I guess. At six to seven inches down, yeah. there'll be a rich supply of invertebrate life. Anyway, they... And then they've got a... They're sort of brown, mottly brown in the plumage and quite long legs. And... Um, yeah, so they breed in, in the uplands of Britain in the summer. And they, so they've got the long beak, which is one distinguishing feature, but the other distinguishing feature is their call. Well, there's the call and the song. Okay. So the call is kind of what gives it their name, curlew. Okay, yeah, that sounds like a curlew to me. That's a call, which might occur in springtime. I'm probably going to mess up, mess with the minds of the curlews that hear over wintering because it wouldn't be normally something they'd hear. Oh, light aircraft over there. Light aircraft. And um, oh, that great crested grebe is just in front of us now. It's um, got the, sh the shapes. You can still see its crest. Oh, it's dived. But it's on black and white rather than the brighter colours of summer plumage. The water, look, the water's getting close. Can you see it rushing Oh my in? goodness, the it's, water yeah. is suddenly um, right about in. five metres away from us, having previously been about 30 or 40 metres away from us. Uh, half a mile when we first got here. Yeah, when we first got here, sure. Yeah, because it totally it rushes in. Helicopter passing. I mean, some more curlews flying in over there. Look, so they've got a sort of more of a haunting cry at this time of year, not the full curly sound, more of a sort of whistle. Yeah, they're one of um, Britain's most endangered species at the moment. And they're kind of, there are fewer and fewer of them in southern England, southern half of Britain. And that's thought to be due to intensification of, ag of agriculture, really. And so loss of the kind of rough grazing and low intensity fields, which used to have lots of food for them. And global warming is also affecting them because they like colder, damper conditions and more forestry. So there's lots of research going on about the, the, what's affecting the breeding population of curlews and the British Trust for Ornithology is um, undertaking a lot of that research. 
and they're also starting to look at what's affecting the winter pop, you know, the the, um, the coli population in winter time. So numbers are declining and they're seriously under threat. And Britain's got, um, you know, a significant proportion of all curlews in the world live in Britain, and this and Morecambe Bay is one of the most important places for for them over winter. I mean, this is a relatively wild space, isn't it? Um, but there's also a lot of human encroachment, yeah. isn't there? And a, and a lot of human sounds. So yes. we're picking up the, the strimmer. We just had a, lot, a really loud helicopter go past. And there have been planes go past. And sometimes um, there are, there's an airfield just over there. And sometimes okay. light aircraft drops paragliders para down. Yeah. And then this area is actually grazed. And obviously, I think they've taken the sheep off because it's such a high tide. There's often a lot of sheep on this salt marsh. So really these birds are living in the, almost the interstices yes. that humans haven't managed to yeah. colonise. And I guess that's the problem for the curlew that in many parts of the country where there used to be habitat that was perfect for curlews, yeah that's now disappeared yeah. and the result has been they just haven't been able to breed. Yeah. Um, well, they're under pressure from all sides or not enough food for the chicks if they have bred. Um, lots of places where they can breed. Yeah. Yeah. But the sort of places where coleus are still common in the British Isles are places like the uh, Hebrides where agriculture is relatively low intensity and low disturbance, plenty of rough grazing, plenty of food. The places where certainly there hasn't been industrial scale farming. Um, and forestry, that's another yeah. thing that's displaced them as well. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, curly population can live alongside a human population, but not where humans are being too dominant. Not where we've got rid of our wet marshy grass. Yeah, damp wet grass. Which for farming, a farmer would want to drain that land yeah. I suppose so they could make it more productive. Yeah, so some, cause we did, uh, again with the British Trust for Ornithology, I did a survey looking at upland farmland and there there were some fields which had lots of curlews which were wet and marshy on the edge of the moors and there were some fields next door which had you know or very nearby which had no curlews and they were really, they'd been well drained they'd um, had fertilizer and improved and land herbicides yeah totally improved pasture yeah. high intensity grazing with sheep yeah no curlews yeah oh i think i forgot to mention one of the other threats um, that, that has been found to be uh, impact badly on curlews is general, generalist predators, so that includes things like crows and magpies. Yeah. So any, but again, I think the numbers of those birds increases due to humans because we produce so much waste that they can feed off, mm. artificially boosting the mm. crow population, yeah. which can then um, attack curlews, chicks and nests. Look, Joey, interrupting here. Look at far over there. That flock. Is swans on the move. Yeah. Yeah. So we're a bit focused on the salt marsh, but in the fields behind the marshes there are hundreds of hooper swans. 
Again, they breed in Iceland and come here for the winter. Do you know what? The angle grinder or whatever <laughs> it is, is doing my head in now. So I think See, I've tuned it out. we should move on from this spot because it's certainly not ideal for right. r recording purposes. Yeah. Even though it may be where we can yeah. see the greatest concentration <laughs> of birds. For our listeners, sure. um, it might be becoming a bit irritating. Yeah. So I'm just looking at... So the flocks are all static on the dry bits. Oh, that's a snipe passing over. For that week? Yeah, yeah. But look, I'm just looking at those last four red shanks. They're up to their chests in water and they're going to have to, there they go. They're just flying off now. <laughs> and we're going to fly off as all well. Right. Come on then, Jack Jack. We've come around the corner, um, down to the water's edge. It's nearly high tide. It's nearly high tide. And far away on the on the far bank, the oyster, the flocks of oyster catchers moved right over there. So you can see a dense clump of several hundred, all jammed in close together. Standing with their heads into the wind for shelter. It is noticeably more windy around this side of the bay, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of facing onto uh, easterly. Yeah. Oh, there's another flock over there. The, the flock's pushed to the far extremity of the water on the edge. And it's a particularly, it looks like a particularly high tide today. There's a local road that's now coming in. Yeah, and it's, and it's nearly at the top of that marker post. Jack Jack's in the water, um, having a sniff around, looking for a stone. We'll bring that back to us in a minute, no doubt. Hey, Kathy. Special sighting. I know, just as we came around the corner and we were walking up this side, down by the water's edge, I saw a kingfisher. I've never seen one of them here before. It was amazing. And it flew in actually from the seaward side, and then there's a sort of partly submerged bit of old gate, and it was perched on there. They like perching yeah. stone, uh, sticks. Things that, yeah, yeah. that stick up out of the water. Rivers. Anyway, so it was standing on there and diving off and fishing. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. So they don't mind a bit of salt water. Perhaps it's brackish. I don't know how salty it is. I'm not going to test it. It's still here with a red shank. So, the sun's still shining. So we're looking south now and it's quite bright. Glittering on the surface of the sea. That far away, you can still just about see with the hills. And Jack with his stone. <laughs> if some of those curlews won't have travelled far, they would be nesting up in those hills. 
now back at the car where we started. It's pretty much high tide. It's pretty much high tide. The water's a few feet away from us. It's very still though. I mean, there is still a nice, slightly stronger breeze than when we started, I think. Mm. But it's a very gentle day, isn't it? Yeah, there's no actual waves as such. It's a, it's a pleasant day, considering it's the very end of October. So we, we hope that you've enjoyed your uh, little virtual tour of this part of Morecambe Estuary. And it's been interesting to find out a bit about the birds that spend their time here and what they're doing. Mm. And Cathy, what what could people do if they wanted to um, find out a bit more? Where could they get yeah. more information or how could they start well, watching if they wanted yeah. to? Yeah, so I think... Um, Winter is a great time to start bird watching because if you go to any of the nature reserves that have got water, um, whether it's wa- whether it's freshwater or coastal areas, um, they've all got plenty of birds at this time of year, overwintering birds. And so any nature reserve by, that's uh, run by the RSPB or the WWT, Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, there you can, it's really great, place to get started because the bird you know wintering ducks for example are right there in front of you they're not disappearing into bushes and they're quite easy it's quite easy to identify all the different species um but the other thing is if you want if you're actually interested in survey work so this is gathering data for use in scientific work scientific research i'd have to say you have to be a certain type of person to enjoy survey yeah, but work lots of people do and i think it's a great extension to normal bird watching yeah Anyway, so it's not something I think that I could do, but I think you're perfectly I love suited. it. I really love it. Anyway, the BTO, British Trust for Ornithology, they run lots of surveys, um, including ones that are very easy to get started with, with very little time commitment to more intensive and more complicated ones. I mean, this one I do is called Webs Wetland Bird Survey, one morning, once a month. But there are plenty of others, including ones that you can do from your own garden. But their website, British Trust for Ornithology, is a great place to start. Okay, thank you for that. Um, We're going to scoot back out uh, onto the A roads now, through the little wiggly lanes. We might we might find some um, hooper swans. Well, we've seen them in the fields, haven't we? We we might look out for them. Yeah, we'll look out for them on the way back, and um, if we find any, we might try and include the sounds of those. All right. in this podcast yeah otherwise see you next time bye bye so we didn't manage to hear the sounds of any hooper swans on the way home but we did come across a mixed field of lapwings and golden plover and we're going to end our podcast with the sound of those <laughs>